Hello, welcome to another episode of Freaking Out About Opening Day with Randy Freaking, the podcast about the history and celebrations of Cincinnati's most revered non-religious holiday. Appropriately enough, ladies and gentlemen, this is episode number 14 of Freaking Out About Opening Day with Randy Freaking, because this episode is devoted to the years when Pete Rose played on opening day in Cincinnati before he departed as a free agent for Philadelphia. 14, of course, was his number. So today we will feature the highlights from opening day 1963 through 1978. So let's start with 1963, which will be an opening day that is remembered as one that changed the Reds forever. Fans met Peter Edward Rose for the first time. He would become the face of the franchise for most of the next 27 years, and his style of play, gritty, hustling, never giving up, was admired by blue-collar and white-collar fans alike. Without question, he was the most popular player during those years. The April 8 morning Cincinnati Enquirer delivered good news to Cincinnati sports fans. Several leading industrial accountants had declared Cincinnati America's best baseball town. The accountants drew the conclusion by considering the total attendance at games and dividing it by the population of the area in which teams played. Cincinnati easily outranked all the other major league cities. Before the opener, the field was altered by the Reds by bringing in sod from, of all places, Gate of Heaven Cemetery just north of the city limits. The fans noticed that the field had never looked better. There were no bare spots, and the field looked like a green wall-to-wall carpet. Patrons also noticed three new painted billboards that stretched across the left field wall. The first time the club placed advertising signs on the outfield fence since the early 1930s, the signs presented a sharp contrast to the green center field wall, and padding was added to the outfield walls to lessen the blow if an outfielder hit the hard rock fence trying to make a catch. An early morning rain that did not subside until 45 minutes before the game put a damper on the annual parades, but the pregame ceremony included a particularly poignant moment. The Reds selected Susan Schroeder, a 1963 Easter Seal child, to toss out the first ball. From her box seat normally reserved for political dignitaries, the disabled girl stood on her crutches and tossed the first ball to Governor James Rhodes. The fans soon learned that the day belonged, however, to Pete Rose. In his first major league at bat, Rose took four consecutive balls and promptly sprinted the first base. He would soon score the first run of the season. The fans had read about Rose during spring training when he was clocked running to first base at 4.1 seconds after a walk but this was the first time they witnessed it live. Mickey Mantle, a New York Yankee legend, 
famously gave Rose his new nickname of Charlie Hustle after he watched Rose run to first base after a base on balls during a routine exhibition game in Florida. Mantle said, Who does he think he is, Charlie Hustle? The Reds scored four runs early in this opener, and the Pirates never seriously threatened to ruin a complete game victory by Jim O'Toole. Even as a rookie without a hit in his first game, Rose dominated the next day's coverage of opening day. Beloved manager Fred Hutchinson praised Rose for his defensive play in the field, calling it good glove work. Enquirer staff reporter Libby Lackman declared, quote, it was almost as much Pete Rose day as opening day. Enquirer executive sports editor Al Heim devoted a full column to the new star. Quote, Rose is always in a hurry. It's not because he's excited or nervous. It's just the way he plays baseball. He drew applause from the capacity crowd in the first inning when he drew a walk and ran the first base with the vigor of a man trying to beat out a bunt. So our next year is 1964, and the title on this sadly is Hutch Diagnosed with Cancer. Reds fans excited for another season had heavy hearts as they prepared for the April 13 opener. Manager Fred Hutchinson had learned on Christmas Eve that he had a malignant growth that was later diagnosed as lung cancer. Fortunately, his brother William was a physician involved in radiation research, and radiation was a new procedure available only in Seattle, Washington. Hutch underwent two months of radiation treatments in Seattle before joining the Reds to direct spring training. The players dedicated the season in his honor. The Enquirer opined in a morning editorial that opening day, quote, is the desk-bound or bench-bound or stove-bound fans' first chance to renew the fresh air acquaintance with a game that is engrossing for so many months of the year, unquote. Although rain and gusty winds ensured the smallest crowd since 1943, the spectators resembled a large family reunion in Cincinnati. An Enquirer writer noted that, quote, 28,110 sisters, brothers, fathers, mothers, cousins, nephews, nieces, grandmothers, grandfathers, friends, and neighbors gathered at the big Crosley Field shelter house, unquote. The fans spent their time greeting friends, drinking gallons of beer, gobbling thousands of bratwurst, and strolling around the grandstand and sun deck during the game. The customary pregame activities entertained the patrons before the Reds were introduced. Fans noticed something curious about the team's jerseys. The Reds had added players' names on the back of their uniforms for the first time, but the strange thing was that they were under the number. No other team ever placed the name of a player under the number. Turned out to be a bad idea as the team discarded the practice after three seasons. The unique uniform style did not provide any motivation for the Reds as they lost 6-3 to to the Houston Colts. 
An Enquirer writer noted, quote, What the heck? One couldn't have everything. Every picnic has a few problems. Unquote. Now, 1965 is a noteworthy year in the history of opening day, and we simply entitle this Rosy Reds. April 12 was a beautiful day for opening day. It was sunny, 76 degrees, and the opener attracted rooters from such points as Louisville, Kentucky, Huntington, West Virginia, uh, Muncie, Indiana, and all over the tri-state area. Wrote Enquirer Sports reporter Bill Anzer, opening day was like, quote, a premiere showing of a movie, a one-day World Series, and to have an opening day ticket is a status symbol, unquote. One particularly enthusiastic group of fans was known as the Rosie Reds. They were formed the previous June, and the group was made up of local women who reacted strongly to build the wits, threat to move the team to San Diego. The members encouraged women to show support for the team by attending both home and away games. Rosie is an acronym for Rooters Organized to Stimulate Interest and Enthusiasm in the Cincinnati Reds. The women adopted a mascot that had a woman's face on a large baseball head. The mascot wore a white, skirted uniform trimmed in red. And Rosie Red remains a favorite mascot even today. Club management credited the Red, Rosie Reds with being influential in the decision to keep the team in Cincinnati. As such, they decided to throw their support behind the group and the highest recognition for the fledgling group was the extension of an invitation by the Reds for the Rosie Reds to participate in the pregame ceremonies on opening day. Club president Jeanette Heinze presented a huge baseball to manager Dick Sisler and vice president Marge Zimmer presented a bouquet of red roses to Milwaukee Braves manager Bobby Bragan. Their historic presentation, the first ever by an exclusively female Reuters group, was preceded by the traditional music by Schmitty's band and the St. Clement's school band that it had led the Finley Market Parade. The bands entertained the crowd of over 28,000 with popular songs including, appropriately enough, Hello, Dolly, and Happy Days Are Here Again. Prior to the National Anthem, the Finley Market Rooters recognized the team's late manager, Fred Hutchinson. They presented owner Bill DeWitt with a plaque honoring Hutch, and the crowd then stood for a moment of silence. The game itself was a pitcher's duel, with both starters completing nine innings in the 4-2 loss for the Reds. 1966 is also a noteworthy year. It's entitled, Rain, Rain, Go Away. Reds fans were optimistic before the scheduled April 11 opener. The club was pitching rich, and national experts had pegged the Reds as the favorites to win the National League. 
As was customary, the first thing fans checked in the morning inquire was the weather, always questionable with ever earlier opening days. And there was good news in the paper. The weatherman had cooperated with the Reds for the big show. The forecast was for fair and warm today, said the Enquirer, and the game was on. Well, unfortunately, the weatherman was as wrong as he could be. Rain began to fall early in the day, and the Finley Market Parade never left the corner of Vine and Elder Streets in Over the Rhine. The players, waiting in the dugout to begin batting practice, departed for the clubhouse at 11.45 a.m., never to return that afternoon. Most of the near-capacity crowd waited in the stands with ponchos and umbrellas before the game was finally canceled at 3.18 p.m. and rescheduled for the next afternoon. When fans awoke the next morning, the weatherman predicted intermittent rain and a chance for a few thunderstorms with colder weather. He was wrong again as the steady rain began in the morning, stopping only for brief intervals. The club was forced to postpone its home opener until April 22, 11 days later. The Reds would open the season on the road for the first time since 1888. Worse, they had a disastrous road trip with six losses and seven games, and the fans were not very interested in attending the Friday night opener, even though the Reds promised souvenir water tumblers and a fireworks show after the game. Only 10,266 fans bothered to show up, making it the worst attendance at a home opener since 1907. The usual pregame festivities were held, but they seemed out of place under the lights before a small crowd. And the game was equally disappointing. The Reds took an early lead, but the Phillies scored five runs in the final three innings to win 9-7. Okay, let's get to some good news. 1967, Bob Halsam comes to Cincinnati. The April 10 opener was preceded by good news. The Reds signed a 40-year lease with the city of Cincinnati to occupy a new stadium on the riverfront. The stadium would have an enclosed circular design and it would appropriately be called Riverfront Stadium. Fans breathed a sigh of relief as the cloud of a potential move to another city disappeared. At the same time, an investment group headed by the publisher of the Enquirer bought the team and hired a new general manager, Bob Housem. Bob Housem would become the architect of the Big Red Machine, which would dominate the National League during the 1970s. Cincinnati fans always enjoyed being in the baseball spotlight on opening day. In 1967, they were in the mood to celebrate the continued presence of the Reds in Cincinnati while, at the same time, reminiscing about Crosley Field. The Enquirer editorial page screamed, Happy New Year! And writer George Palmer reflected on the sentiment of those who saw the days of Crosley Field coming to an end. Quote, today will be one of the last. The death of Crosley Field, 
as the home of the Cincinnati Reds is predictable. Within two years, the great festivities that always attend a Reds opening day will be moved downtown to the new Riverfront Stadium. Crosley Field will then be an empty ghost on that early April opening day, and the plot of land that has witnessed the heroics of the baseball greats of all time for 83 years will be retired to a new purpose. Unquote. As fans arrived at the park, they saw bright green grass imported from Asia, known as zoysia grass. It was known to hold up better in hot weather than traditional species of grass used in ballparks. When the Reds took the field for batting practice, the early arrivals saw that the vest-style uniforms had been replaced with the traditional shirt and sleeves. The Finley Market Rooters arrived as usual, led by a parade marshal and color guards. The parade also featured the Roger Bacon High School Band, a Boy Scout troop, and baton twirlers by the name of the Linkettes. With new owners, new uniforms, and new grass, the spectators were in the holiday spirit. The Reds rewarded their faithful with a convincing 6-1 win over the Dodgers. It was a perfect day for baseball, which caused meteorologist Bob Brumfield to breathe a sigh of relief after the previous year's forecast was off the mark. Quote, well, the heat is off of me for a couple days anyway. The forecast for the Reds' opening day weather was accurate, period, unquote. Okay, let's move on to 1968, and we title this portion, Morning Dr. King. Dr. King, the most visible leader in the civil rights movement, was assassinated by James Earl Ray on April 4, just four days before the scheduled April 8 opener. As a result of Martin Luther King's death, the Reds and the rest of MLB quickly postponed their openers. Opening day in Cincinnati was delayed for six days. Sports columnist Lou Smith poignantly explained why the postponement was necessary. Quote, It seems to me that it was fitting that the baseball season, opening day of America's favorite sport, should be postponed out of deference and respect for Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., For wasn't it baseball that first put into action, so to speak, the philosophy of Dr. King? It was baseball that first acknowledged the ability of those other than the white players. Perhaps before too long, all men will be judged, as Dr. King said, quote, not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character, unquote. For the opening day game, although every seat had been sold in advance, only 28,111 spectators attended the 10-4 win over the Cubs. Both the ushers and the ballpark sported a new look. The ushers were dressed in new Palm Beach red jackets, and the grandstand roof featured pennants identifying each National League team. Maybe more importantly, a beer garden was added under the stands behind the third base line. 
Preceding the game, the Finley Market Association made its annual pilgrimage from Vine and Elder Streets, and Marion Spellman sang the national anthem. As it had done in some years, the association crowned the queen of opening day. Mayor Gene Roman, described as the number one Reds fan, then threw out the first pitch to future Congressman Willis Grattison. The annual festivities provided a welcome relief from the sorrows of the day. Now we move to 1969, a happier year, and we're going to call this a birthday party. April 7, the earliest opening day in history, marked the 100th anniversary of the Cincinnati Red Stockings, the first professional baseball team in America. Cincinnatians, as we know, are proud of our baseball heritage dating back to 1869, and we like the fact that we're viewed as trailblazers in the sport. After all, the Reds were the first to have a ladies' day, the first to host a ninth game, the first to have a farm system, the first to travel by air, and the first team to be televised on opening day. But the historic season of the 1869 Red Stockings is why most baseball fans in Cincinnati believe the city deserves to open the season. The Enquirer announced on the morning of the game, quote, it's centennial year for the Reds, unquote. And the day was made to order, 87 degrees and sunny. Not surprisingly, the game sold out, and the shirt sleeve fans who began the stream in at noon were rollicking. They welcomed the annual parade from Finley Market, which entered through Crosley Field's right field gate at precisely 1.55 p.m. as scheduled. The color guards of the combined armed forces led the Linkette, Baton Twirlers, and the Roger Bacon High School Marching Band into the ballpark. Following close behind were the Boy Scouts carrying flowers to present the club officials. The local knothole rooters brought the best present of all, a five-foot-tall, four-layer birthday cake. The only thing missing were a hundred candles to mark the occasion. In addition to the local politicians, Paul Brown, the founder and coach of Cincinnati's new franchise in the National Football League, the Bengals, appeared on behalf of the team. Mayor Roman presented an American flag to Bob Housem and declared, quote, under this flag stands the greatest country in the world, unquote. The white grandstands were draped with colorful bunting, and the fans were sporting red vests, ties, hats, dresses, and jackets as they waved banners and flags. An Enquirer reporter spotted a Catholic nun wearing a Go Reds, go button. The reporter also observed, quote, hearty matrons came in red knit suits, Easter chapeau and corsages, and gripped scorecards in their teeth as they applauded Pete Rose, unquote. Barney Rapp's strolling musicians entertained the crowd between innings, often featuring Jerry McDermott on the trombone. During the seventh inning stretch, Sports Service Inc. reported record sales of hot dogs and cold drinks. The crowd of 30,000 had barely settled into their seats when Pete Rose and Bobby Tolan led off the bottom of the first inning with back-to-back home runs. But that was a last standing ovation of the day 
as Dodgers starting pitcher Don Drysdale recovered and pitched a gem. The Dodgers won 3-2. Fans left the ballpark, unsure as to whether they had witnessed the last opening day at Crosley Field. The new stadium on the riverfront was under construction and was projected to be ready for the full 1970 season if it all went well. It didn't, and so we move to a period I call the sensational 70s and the last opening day at Crosley Field. We title 81970 simply Crosley Field Bids Adieu. April 6th, 1970 was the debut of new Reds manager George Sparky Anderson. Between getting a new manager and playing their last opening day game at Crosley Field, the Reds made the point to put on a good show. The prospect of having no more opening days at Crosley Field marked the end of an era. The team had played at the Findlay Street and Western Avenue site since 1884. The original home plate was located in what was now deep right field, where fans on this day filled the sun deck. To mark the occasion, the current and former presidents of the National League, along with other local and state dignitaries, came to pay their respects. The Reds planned to move to their new stadium on June 30. It was a sad day for many fans who had come to love the quaint little ballpark. It was the only one they had ever known, and they hated to say goodbye. The gloomy, chilly weather, complete with occasional rain showers, suited the occasion. Fans who arrived early to take in the festivities were greeted by 40-degree temperatures and two different rain showers. The pregame ceremonies were remarkably unsentimental, as there was little mention of the game being the last opener at the historic ballpark. It was as if club officials and patrons wanted to avoid the subject. The celebration focused more on marking the 50th anniversary of the Finley Market Parade. The fans witnessed the usual pomp and circumstance involving the crowning of the group's queen and the performance of the high school marching bands. Marion Spellman sang her last national anthem at the park. The Reds easily won this opener 5-1, defeating the Montreal Expos. They would go on to win the National League in 1970 before losing the World Series to Baltimore. So we move to 1971, and we call this year a new parade route. Although the Reds had settled comfortably into Riverfront Stadium during the summer of 1970, April 5, 1971 marked the first opening day at the new location. Parade participants had to follow a different route than they were accustomed to taking. Instead of proceeding west from Finley Market, the Grand Marshal led the marching bands and floats south on Race Streets and then west on 5th Street past Fountain Square. As fans lined Race Street in Over the Rhine, they were able to see buildings that are the nation's largest collection of 19th century Italianette architecture. 
The area was a former home of Cincinnati's German-speaking residents and their many breweries. Thousands of cheering spectators watched as the parade made, made its first ever trek to the new riverfront ballpark. From there, the parade entered through a center field gate to an ovation from the largest crowd, 51,702, ever to attend a baseball game in Cincinnati. Of course, that was due to the fact it was a larger stadium. The Pete Wagner Dixieland Band, the Roger Bacon High School Band, the Wright-Patterson Air Force Bass Band, and the Queen City Drum and Bugle Corps provided the music for the festive atmosphere. The pregame ceremonies at Riverfront mirrored those conducted at Crosley. Reds manager Sparky Anderson accepted a floral display from the Finley Market Association, and local politicians, team officials, and National League President Charles Feeney made speeches. The biggest roar of the day came when the National League pennant was raised on top of Riverfront Stadium to recognize the Reds' league championship the previous year. The game time temperature of 46 degrees fell throughout the game, so Reds reliever Clay Carroll joked that pitchers would be throwing snowballs by the sixth inning. After the Reds committed six errors and were beaten by the Atlanta Braves, manager Sparky Anderson warned reporters not to make a big deal about the result. Quote, if this game had been played in July, nobody would have thought anything about it. But here, opening day is like the World Series. Let's move to 1972, very unusual year. We entitled this, Does Anyone Still Care? By 1972, labor unions had become a force in the United States for more than a century. Baseball players unionized by forming the Major League Baseball Players Association, but the union was barely noticed until the players hired Marvin Miller in 1966 to head the organization. Talks for a new collective bargaining agreement continued through spring training in 1972. The primary request from the players was for an increase in their pensions to match three years' worth of inflation. To the amazement of the owners, who wanted to break the fledgling union, 47 out of 48 player representatives voted to begin a strike just four days before opening day. Openers were canceled, and 74 other games would never be made up until the owners blinked and agreed to increase the pension fund. Opening day was postponed 10 days until April 15. Enquirer sports reporter Bob Herzl summed up the feelings of Reds fans. Quote, If there's anyone left who still cares, opening day 1972 has arrived at last. Unquote. The annual pregame parade went on as scheduled, but it was much easier to find a place to plant a lawn chair on the city sidewalks than in past years, as many spectators boycotted the event due to the strike. When the color guards, bands, and rosy reds entered the stadium, the applause was muted. More than 14,000 fans lodged a silent protest by not coming to the game against the Dodgers, but the 37,895 who did show up were anything but silent. 
There are only two players who received a warm welcome by fans. They were Frank Robinson, the former Red Star, who was now a Dodger, and Pete Rose. Otherwise, the players from both teams were booed as they were introduced along the baselines. The fans reserved their heartiest catcalls for pitcher Jim Merritt, who was the Reds' union representative, and Johnny Bench, who was an outspoken supporter of Marvin Miller. The game itself proved to be a disaster for the Reds as they collected just three hits and lost 3-1. to one. The game mercifully ended in two hours and 13 minutes. Let's move on to 1973, and we call this year Vietnam POW Honored. Just over two months before the April 5 opener, the United States signed the Paris Peace Accords to officially end direct American involvement in the Vietnam War. Fittingly, the Reds invited fighter pilot Edward Meckenbeyer to throw out the first pitch on opening day. Meckenbeyer, whose home was in nearby Dayton, Ohio, had spent 2,076 days as a prisoner of war after his plane was shot down over North Vietnam during his 80th combat mission. Meckenbeyer received a hero's welcome and a standing ovation from the 51,179 fans in attendance. Fans were still excited after another National League championship, so they turned out despite game time temperatures of 42 degrees, and the Enquirer announced that it was, quote, SRO, unquote, shivering room only. Opening day was much anticipated in 1973 as the Big Red Machine was expected to dominate the league again. The opener followed the team's second World Series loss in three years, and Reds officials announced that the game would be held, quote, in a World Series atmosphere, period, unquote. Dignitaries, including Ohio Governor John Gilligan, U.S. Senator Robert Taft, Cincinnati Mayor Theodore Berry, all welcomed Meckenbeyer, who was also a lifelong Reds fan. The day began with the traditional opening game festivities and the 54th edition of the Finley Market Parade but the downtown streets were lined with fewer people in the cold, damp weather. Coming off their World Series appearance, the Reds anticipated the largest crowd in history, but thousands decided to stay home because of the weather. The Reds lost 4-1 to the Giants. 1974 is appropriately titled, Will Aaron Play? The April 4 opener in 1974 is likely the most unusual one in Reds' history. The focus on the event during the offseason had always been the anticipation of another season, the festivities planned for opening day, and the unofficial beginning of spring. For five months, however, the sports world and Cincinnati fans had been consumed with Henry Aaron. Aaron had hit the 713th home run of his career at the end of the previous season, which put him one short of Babe Ruth's all-time record of 714 home runs, the most hallowed record in sports. Naturally, Atlanta fans wanted to see this record tied and then broken in Atlanta. Fans, journalists, and baseball officials 
debated over the winter whether Aaron should sit out the first three games that were scheduled in Cincinnati and whether, if that happened, it was in keeping with the integrity of the game. The question was still unresolved on the morning of April 4, with Braves manager Eddie Matthews publicly stating that Aaron should wait to play until the Braves had their home opener four days later. However, MLB Commissioner Bowie Kuhn ordered the Braves to play Aaron in at least two of the three games. As such, the Braves announced after a morning meeting of the team's brass that Aaron would start that afternoon on opening day. That decision was welcomed by the 250 members of the press who had arrived in Cincinnati to cover the event, as well as the commissioner and vice president Gerald Ford. Ford had been given the honor of throwing out the traditional first pitch. The pregame pageantry featured more dignitaries than ever before, and the first ever opening day appearance by the Miamisburg High School Marching Band and Stan Piet's Band. The downtown parade was expected to be the largest in history. In addition, the largest ever opening day crowd of over 52,000 gave Aaron a huge standing ovation as he stepped in the batter's box in the top of the first inning. After looking at the first four pitches, Aaron smashed the next pitch over the left field wall to tie the record. The game was stopped for seven minutes while the vice president and Kuhn congratulated Aaron, presenting him with a ball and plaques to commemorate the occasion. Ford said, quote, I congratulate you, Hank, on a great day, which is also a great day for baseball, and I hope you have many more, period, unquote. Aaron would also play in the third game of the season, but he left Cincinnati tied with Ruth and promptly broke the record in Atlanta's opening home game. Reds fans were giddy leaving the ballpark after the historic day because the Reds rallied from a 6-1 deficit to win 7-6 in 11 innings. It was a remarkable day for baseball fans. We move on to 1975, and we call this year of opening day, Rivals Meet Early. April 7 did not seem like spring at all. It was not because it was a chilly day that required three hibachi grills in the Reds' dugout to keep warm, however. Instead, it was because the Reds were scheduled to play their arch rivals, the Dodgers, and the hype for the game made it seem like a fall World Series game. The teams had battled fiercely for the Western Division Championship the two preceding seasons. Enquirer sports reporter Bob Herzl put it aptly, quote, The 1975 baseball season begins today, and the match had to be made in Commissioner Bowie Coon's heaven. It is the World Series in April, unquote. The Finley Market Association organized the largest parade in opening day history to date. Cincinnati Mayor Ted Berry presided over a special program at Fountain Square. The party on the square was designed to give people who did not have tickets some kind of show after the parade and before the game. Grand Marshal Wade Hoyt, the retired but still revered radio announcer and Hall of Fame member, continued the party by leading a big brass band and other musicians to the stadium a short time later. 
a horse-drawn wagon carried market officials and other dignitaries to and around the field. The teams did not disappoint the 52,526 fans lucky enough to have the ticket. In the longest opening day game ever played in Cincinnati, the Reds won 2-1 in 14 innings. 1976, we call this World Champs Toasted on the Bicentennial. As Americans everywhere were gearing up for the nation's bicentennial celebration on July 4, 1976, Reds fans prepared to celebrate the first opening game in 35 years that would toast the team as the defending world champs. Spring was in the air. Bill Lyndon Smith of the Acme Hardware was the president of the Finley Market Association and he was responsible for the largest parade ever organized in Cincinnati. More than 50 groups participated in one way or another in the parade. Participants included five marching bands, local politicians, and cartoon characters from the local entertainment park, Kings Island. Uncle Al, the host of a long-running local television show, performed on one of the trucks to entertain the children who regularly watched him on TV. Lewis Crosley, the brother of Powell Crosley Jr., served as the Grand Marshal. When the parade reached Fountain Square, popular radio personality Jim LaBarbera of WLW Radio hosted a rally for fans. The rally lasted for an hour, after which the fans headed to the ballpark. On their way, they no doubt passed Peanut Jim Shelton. Peanut Jim was working his 44th of an eventual 49 openers. Dressed in his trademark costume of a black coat with tails, a black bow tie, and a stovepipe top hat, Shelton was hawking his specialty, barbecued peanuts from his coal-fired hand cart. At age 86, Peanut Jim had no intention of retiring, and he worked alone. Want to buy a peanut, he would ask. They're cheaper out here. Once inside the pole park, 52,949 fans, the largest ever to see a regular season game in the city, listened to the introduction of national and local government dignitaries and stood reverently as Gwen Conley sang the national anthem. Lewis Nippert, the Reds chairman, threw out the first pitch. The revelry continued throughout the game as the Reds trounced the Houston Astros 11-5. Okay, let's move to 1977 after two world championships we call this year, Can They Repeat? All winter, listeners debated on Bob Trumpy's popular WLW sports talk show about Pete Rose and whether the Reds would win a third consecutive world championship. Rose was in the midst of a contentious dispute with the Reds, and he sought a staggering $400,000 per season. The negotiations were emotional. They reached a climax when the club took out half-page ads in the Enquirer and the Dayton Daily News to explain its stand in the holdout. Controversial general manager Dick Wagner admitted that the team purchased the ads reluctantly in an effort to get our story to the fan. Unquote. 
The fans' anxiety was relieved as they opened the morning paper on opening day. Herzl announced the good news. Quote, Nighttime is still dark. Stars twinkle in the day. Spring still means love. And Pete Rose is still a Cincinnati Red. Opening day and all is right with the world. The captain and his bosses compromised, reaching an 11th hour agreement before Rose's ultimatum took effect. In the end, Rose and the Reds reached a compromise. He signed a two-year contract for $375,000 a season. Spring was here and it was time for baseball. Or was it? Reds fans should have had a premonition that a three-peat would not happen. The season was not starting out as they had hoped. Snow was falling, and four inches of it already covered the field on the morning of opening day. Marchers on the parade route were dodging snowdrifts and 38-degree temperatures with 15-mile-per-hour winds. Fans wrapped themselves in quilts. The Padres' Doug Raider built a small snowman outside the team's dugout. Now, Dick Wagner, to his credit, was prepared for the foul weather. An expanded staff of 60 people pushed, shoveled, and hauled snow off the field with the aid of a tractor and a dump truck. By game time, the field was cleared, and that was actually to the dismay of some fans who believed the game should have been postponed. When the parade entered the stadium and the dignitaries were introduced, the oratory was short. Mayor James Lucan answered his own question, quote, Who else would go out and play baseball on a day like today except for the Reds? This day is almost a religion to the Reds, unquote. Charles Taft, a retired city councilman for whom the city council had renamed the stadium in February, a vote that was later rescinded, wished he was the Grand Marshal some other year when it was warmer. The day began with the good news of Rose's signing and ended that way too. The Reds prevailed 5-3 to three before nearly 52,000 hearty souls. Rose went hitless in four at-bats. Although the club went 88-74 on the season, there was no three-peat to be had. 1978, we conclude this episode with the year entitled Rain Delay. April 6, 1978 was one of the wettest openers in history. Thousands lied the parade route from Finley Market to Fountain Square with raincoats and umbrellas. The crowd was smaller than in previous years because of the weather, and there was a steady drizzle until game time. After a disappointing 1977 season, Reds fans were eager to witness the opening day debut of future Hall of Fame pitcher Tom Seaver. The Reds had acquired Seaver from the New York Mets in the middle of the 1977 season. On the morning of the opener, Seaver claimed that he would never admit being nervous on opening day, but then he confessed, quote, I am more nervous on opening day. You can't admit that to yourself. You have to have your emotions under control. You must discipline your mind to say, no, there are no nerves, unquote. I have to say, inquiring minds want to know. 
Was he nervous or not? Anyway, the pregame activities featured the return of radio personality Gwen Conley to sing the national anthem. Conley was rumored at the time to be in a relationship with the star left fielder for the Reds, George Foster. The rain stopped just in time for her stirring rendition, but precipitation returned three more times during the game, resulting in delays of one hour and 39 minutes. Seaver had his worst opening day pitching performance ever, allowing five runs before he was removed in the fourth inning. The Reds managed to win the game against the Astros 11-9, but only 10,000 of the nearly 53,000 spectators in attendance remained in the park when the game concluded after nearly five hours at 7.07 p.m. Ironically, the team had just been given permission by the city to install two clocks on the stadium's facade, so fans were well aware of the game's long duration. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that concludes our journey through the years featuring Pete Rose's first stint with the Cincinnati Reds. Of course, he would later return in 1984, but at a much older age and in the declining years of his career. From 63 through 78, he was at his prime, and there were celebrations throughout those 16 years as we've just reviewed. This is Randy Freaking signing off. And in the immortal words of Marty Brenneman, so long, everybody. Everybody.